Our Father, we thank you for this time that we have this morning to begin our Lord's Day. Lord, we thank you for your help. From the last Lord's Day to now, you have helped every one of us. You have been a, a, a mighty presence in our lives, Lord, through your Spirit. We are so thankful for you. And I pray that this day, Lord, would be set apart for you. That we would leave behind the cares of the world and that we would be even more heavenly minded today. That we would think on things that are high and lofty and grand and majestic and heavenly. And I pray that that would be our heart's cry this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're continuing Module 5, Session 11, which is Ecclesiology 2, Church Government and Ordinances or Sacraments, Part 1. So I, I mentioned, much to your dismay, that we're going to look at the history of the ordinances or the sacraments. And there's a couple of reasons to do this. Um, first of all, uh, you know, first or Second Timothy tells us that we are, or First Timothy rather, tells us that we are pillars and buttresses of the truth, and we need to carry these truths. And one of the great weaknesses in the church today is that we don't have a sense of church history, um, and that's what leads one of the things that leads to doctrinal deviation. Because if you if you're espousing some doctrine that you can't look back and see that there are at least a few other people that believe the same thing, then you're probably in the wrong camp. Um, and, and I think the charismatic Pentecostal movement is a great example of that. They have no place in church history. They just pop up out of nowhere in the early 1900s. So they can't trace their history back. Um, we can trace ours. And so that's, that's one reason. It's important for you to carry the history of the church. Um, that's, that's a part of our heritage. Uh, another reason it's important is I want to show you that what you believe about the ordinances, about uh, baptism and the Lord's table, um, has actually been the, uh, the field of battle for the church for 2,000 years. Um, the, the ordinances were the cause of death of reformers, um, and not from Catholics, reformers to reformers. Um, killing each other over the sacraments. This was back in the day where, where you kind of thought that, uh, that you, you physically fought for theology. And that's, that's a wrong way to think, but it happened. It did happen. And so um, it's important for us to look at this. And, and also, uh, one last reason, you're going to hear me quoting some Catholics. And you kind of go, well, what, why would you do that? Uh, Thomas Aquinas. There's a bunch of stuff flying around on social media right now. Don't ever read Thomas Aquinas, and, and, and that's fine, and that's great. Um, but there is, in our circles, kind of a misnomer that the early church was going along just fine, and all of a sudden, somebody flipped a switch, and everybody started putting on funny hats and robes, and we suddenly became, uh, the whole world was Catholicized, and then in the Reformation, the switch got flipped off uh, again for... Uh, for the Protestants. That's not the way it went down. Um, what, if you saw some of the men preaching in the 4th century, later this morning, I'm going to quote John Chrysostom, if you saw him preaching, you would think, this guy's a Catholic in the 4th century. But his preaching is, for the most part, very orthodox, and his gospel is orthodox. So they had already entered the era of wearing funny clothes, um, but you kind of did that for lots of areas of life. So this is a really a, a really slippery slope here, and so I want to just trace our way through some of the history of the ordinances. 
and um, just let it be okay to know that it's uh, that there's a lot of gray area. There's a lot of mixing of the waters here, and then we'll kind of get to how we arrived. Now, uh, this is not talking about the spiritual significance of the ordinances for us today. We'll do that the next time we get to a theology module. Um, this is just definitions and history today, which is a great day to get out early. So I'm going to fly through this. Um, let's just look at terminology, and, and I would suggest you take light notes. I don't think what we're doing today will be something you'll put in your quiet times and just thank the Lord for at a high level, but at least it's part of your brain, um, part of your mind now. Um, the term sacrament. Sacrament is from the Latin sacramentum, which was applied to anything sacred, anything consecrated. So it's, it's not a bad word in and of itself. I'll tell you why we don't use it, though, in a little bit. And then the word ordinance. Ordinance. I want to. I want to quote from Robert Sosi. He says, "Because of the mysterious connotation of the term sacrament, and the almost magical power associated with it, as when the Roman Catholic insists that the priest has power to convert the bread and cup into the actual blood and body of Christ, many prefer the term ordinance, coming from the Latin ordo, meaning a row, an order, ordinance." emphasizes the fact that these rites were ordained by the Lord with no thought of them actually conveyors of grace but rather only as symbols. So, ordo, um, ordained, it was given by, given by the Lord. Roman Catholics see seven sacraments. We affirm two. What is the purpose of the sacraments? Well, for Roman Catholics, sacraments are said to infuse grace and they're necessary for salvation. And so the, the more of the seven, and I'll list the seven for you here in a bit, the more of them you partake in, the, the greater chance you have to get saved. So it's kind, of a, it's kind of a hedge your bet sort of a system for your salvation. And then for many Protestants, sacraments are what we call a means of grace when received with faith. Now I'm going to take a little digression here. There are two, basically two different ways that the term means of grace is used. If you're, uh, if you're reading your theology, Biblical Doctrine by MacArthur and Mayhew, there are sections in there that use the term means of grace. The first way that's used is the idea of receiving grace during your life as a Christian. Receiving grace um, through the Word of God and through prayer and through, yes, the ordinances and through attendance at the church. That, that that is the way God is infusing grace into your life. That's one way, and we, we would agree with that. But the other way it's used, we would not agree with means of grace, that the sacraments and other things are, uh, are the means by which your salvation is, is perpetuated, that it's kept. It's, they wouldn't say it's works-based salvation. They wouldn't say that, that, that sacraments are a work uh, or that reading the Bible is a good work. They wouldn't say that. But they would say that God will definitely keep your salvation secure, but he does it by means of certain things, including the Lord's table. Um, some of the first churches in our own town to have a massive protest when churches were shut down uh, back during COVID were covenant theology churches who, who would teach, a couple of them in town teach that, yes, the Lord will keep your salvation, but it's by means of, of uh, church attendance and the Lord's table. And I saw things on, on Facebook that were really bordering on, on what I would call heretical. Um, so we don't hold to the means of grace that you must take the Lord's table in order to maintain your salvation. Um, that, that, 
that gets into some really murky waters. And then for Baptists and other Protestants, sacraments testify to God's grace already received. It's not something God does in or for us. Where do we fall on that? Probably somewhere between number two and three. Um, because one of the great things about the, the, the Protestants that do believe that the sacraments are a means of grace is that there is a high and lofty view of the Lord's table. I cannot tell you how many churches I've come across either through their pastor or through church members or whatever, email, telephone calls, you name it, where entire churches have gone years without ever receiving the Lord's table. In, in my mind, they're not a church if they're not doing that because that was a clear command of the Lord. So... Um, Neither do we want to take it lightly. We don't say, oh yeah, it's just something we kind of do. Um, the memorial view tends to take the Lord's table, can tend to take it lightly. And so we want to have a sobriety and a somberness to it. So let's see if we can develop that somewhat. Okay, now we're going to get into the history part. And I'm going to go faster. First of all, uh, sacraments. Wait a minute. Did I miss one? Purpose. I'm a preacher, not a teacher. There we go. Okay, well, we'll get to that slide eventually, I guess. Um, for the first few centuries of the church, there wasn't a lot of discussion of sacraments. And the reason is because, again, the church was developing and the church was running for its life. Um, what was the big thing happening in the church for the first couple centuries? Evangelism. It was the spread of the gospel everywhere. Augustine was the first to discuss what a sacrament was, and so now you start these theological discussions. It's the sign of a sacred thing, and it has to bear some relation to the thing that it's a sign of, that it's signifying. So th these are vague definitions, and so when you get into the medieval times, you have theologians beginning to try to define what sacraments are. And now we get up to, okay, yes, there he is, uh, Hugh of St. Victor um, in the 12th century. During the Middle Ages... This guy named Hugh, he was a theologian, he's either German or Flemish. He wrote an important work called On the Sacraments of the Christian Faith. And he, he was trying to find a, a precise definition of sacrament. So for him, a sacrament was, quote, a physical or material element set before the external senses, representing by likeness, signifying by its institution, and containing by sanctification some invisible and spiritual grace. So let me break that down. For him, there are four essential elements for a sacrament. There must be something physical or material. There's something you can see or touch or taste. Uh, water for baptism. Wine and bread for the Eucharist or the Lord's table. Oil for, the, for what the Catholics call extreme unction. That is anointing the terminally ill with, with olive oil. So there has to be something physical. There has to be some similarity or kind of likeness to the thing signified. Um, that wine has a similarity to the blood of Christ. Bread has a similarity to the body of Christ. So, in other words, we, we don't have a, um, a Michelin tire on the platform saying, this tire represents the body and blood of Christ. That wouldn't make sense. But the, the, the wine and the bread, the juice and the bread have a likeness. There's a third uh, part. That there has to be good reason that the sign in question has been authorized. So Jesus authorized the use of wine and bread to represent his blood and his body. And just by the way, there's a whole, there's a whole debate about whether you should use juice or wine. 
Um, can I just, in really brief form, the wine of the first century was the juice of today. Um, it's totally different. The, the wine of today would be considered hard liquor in the first century. There's a whole study behind this. But, um, so it isn't really a debate. Um, it, you, didn't, you didn't come to, this is why, this is why uh, Paul condemned the Corinthians for coming to church drunk. Um, that, that's totally not what's supposed to happen. So it's not really a debate. So if you're wondering, well, maybe if we used real wine, that would be a little bit higher level. We're doing basically what the early church did. Um, and why is that? Because almost nobody drank water. Did you know that? Why did you not drink water? Because everybody would get sick. You would get whatever disease is in the water. And so generally speaking, everybody drank wine. And you live in a, in a massively hot uh, culture, you have to drink a lot, right? Just like we do in Bakersfield. Everybody carries, look, how many water bottles right here because you live in Bakersfield. So don't worry about whether, well, is the wine just a little bit higher level? Don't worry about that. It has similarity, right? And praise the Lord for Welch's. You know, that's, that's what, uh, that's why he, that's why Welch's went into business. And the fourth part, the sacrament must have power in that it confers benefits on those who partake of the sacrament. Now, that's where we would probably part ways. That, that it doesn't have power in and of itself. Is receiving the Lord's table and is being baptized a powerful event? It absolutely is. Um, it was commanded by the Lord. That alone makes it powerful. Um, it's powerful enough that if somebody comes to Grace Bible Church and says, I want to be a member, that I won't be baptized, we won't let them be a member. Because they're not obeying Christ in our mind. Um, then you add to this, you, you say, well, he's pretty close. Hugh of St. Victor was, but he also held that the incarnation of Christ, the church, and your own death were also sacraments. That the final act you do on this earth is a sacrament, and that is dying. So, okay, well, that's interesting. But, but his views weren't really based in scripture. They were based in, in theological logic and philosophical theology. And so um, it's useful, but not, uh, not authoritative. Then you have Peter Lombard. He also was in the 12th century, and he wrote a book called Four Books of the Sentences, and he offered a definition of the sacrament that avoided any reference to physical elements like bread, wine, or water, uh, as St. Hugh did, Hugh of St. Victor, rather. Um, For him, a sacrament is, quote, a sign of the grace of God and a form of invisible grace so that it bears its image and exists as its cause. Um, So... What does that do? Well, what that did was it opened up the possible list of sacraments to be baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, marriage, ordination, and extreme unction, anointing with oil for healing. And that became definitive for medieval Catholic theology. Those are still the seven sacraments in Catholicism today. So that's just kind of a a brief history. Let's look at, at baptism. Baptism in the patristic era, that's the church fathers immediately after the apostles. In general, beliefs about baptism included baptism brought remission of sins. Oh no, we're already off track. Why are there so many verses in, at the end of the Bible about watch out for false teaching? Because we didn't have, we, we, we weren't developed yet. You have Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, godly men who thought baptism brought remission of sins. So they were confused on this. Baptism brought regeneration. Uh, Methodius of Olympus taught this. That that was the moment of regeneration. And you're going, boy, they're already sounding Catholic. Yeah, they they were. Infant baptism. 
The, the idea was uh, that in the Old Testament, infants, infant boys were circumcised, and so in the New Testament, baptism correlates to circumcision, and so they either baptize infants. That's still a belief of Roman Catholicism and all paedo-baptists today. Um, what does this tell us? It tells us to remember that sound doctrine is not based on who believed it. Sound doctrine is based on an exegesis of Scripture and Scripture alone. How about the Middle Ages? During the 7th and 8th centuries, baptism was the primary sacrament. That was the big one. In the 9th century, though, it, it shifted to the Eucharist. That became viewed as the primary sacrament because it was something that you could do over and over again. Remember, the Catholics will always default to emphasizing something you have to repeat because that's how they stay in business, by, by keeping you coming back to repeat things. They viewed baptism as a means of grace, but uh, you, you can only do that once. And so that wasn't a very good way to control people. That's my view. Um, the Roman Catholic Church stated they were the only agent that could perform valid baptism. They still hold to that today. Um, they, they call uh, Protestants the lost brothers. Um, that's what, you know, that, that we're, we sort of believe what they do, but we're still lost. And if we would only come home and confess our sins at the local Catholic Church, we would, they would welcome us with open arms. One writer says, Baptism enabled infants to be saved through faith and confession of others, provided that when they come to the proper age, they preserve the integrity of the faith that has been confessed for them. Then how about the, the Eucharist? We generally shy away from that term. Why? Because when, you, when I say the word Eucharist, what do you think of? You think of Catholicism. Um, we think of uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, religion as well, which is which is punted the gospel by now. So we don't use the term, but I'm going to use it. It just it just means Thanksgiving is all it means. In the patristic era, the early church fathers, the doctrine of the Eucharist again wasn't discussed that much during this time. There was serious debate concerning the real presence of the body and blood of Christ, but that didn't happen until the ninth century, and so that became the debate: Is Christ really there at that moment? The early church fathers held to some form of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Uh, Ignatius called the Eucharist the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and he lived in the early 2nd century. Uh, Tertullian said that the one taking the Eucharist feeds on the body of Christ. So do you see how very quickly the church begins slipping into mysticism, into making symbols into something real? And that is just that is human nature. We are idol worshippers, and we'll make idols of anything. Theologians didn't have specific adequate concepts to formulate the doctrine of the real presence. There was no scriptural backing for it, but it became the default view of the church. There were other themes in addition to the real presence. The Eucharist is a sacrifice. You're, you're participating in the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, it was a preparation for immortality. Uh, according to Ignatius, the Eucharist was the medicine of immortality, the antidote to death. And so we begin to go down these really weird roads. In the Middle Ages, a guy named Radbertus in the 8th and 9th centuries, he wrote the first doctrinal book on the doctrine of the Eucharist. So it took nine centuries before anybody wrote anything seriously on it. He maintained the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, that the Eucharist literally was the flesh that was born of Mary and crucified on the cross. That there was something that happens. He had a rival... Ratromnus, who took a more spiritual approach, he said that the elements aren't the actual body and blood of Christ, but they are mystic symbols of remembrance. 
That's his, those, are, those are his words. Mystic symbols of remembrance. And so he would be regarded as a symbolist that he saw the, the sacrificial meal um, as being important enough that maybe, maybe it's not the actual body and blood of Christ, but there is um, an importance to it. And we, we would be a little bit closer to that. During the Middle Ages, there were more elaborate doctrines of the Eucharist developed by scholastic philosophers, um, influenced not by any theologian, but mostly by looking back at Aristotle. If you, if we had time and it was like uh, my goal was to put you to sleep, we could do a whole history of how Aristotle has wildly, badly impacted Christian theology, even to this day. Um, I'm just going to ask you a question. Before you came to Grace Bible Church, um, how many of you had almost zero teaching on what heaven is like and, and or that, that maybe you thought that heaven was just this ethereal, cloudy place that's mysterious. How many of you had that viewpoint before you came to Grace Bible Church? So yeah, there's a few of you. That's actually normal in the church. The reason for that is Aristotle who taught that the physical is bad and the spiritual and invisible is good. And that has made its way into Christian teaching going all the way back to the early church. And so that brings us to... Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is based on Aristotle. Aristotle taught a distinction between two ideas, substance and accident. And and both of those are used differently than we use them today. Substance was the essential nature of something, and the accidents are its outward appearance, that color, shape, smell, something you can touch or see. Transubstantiation holds that the accidents, the actual things of the bread and the wine, remain unchanged at the moment of consecration, while the substances, the essence of the thing, of the bread and wine, change to that of the body and blood of Christ. What is that saying? That the, the, the bread and the wine don't change, but they change. That's what it's saying. Thomas Aquinas developed this doctrine. It was viewed and affirmed by the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. Transubstantiation, this is still the view of the Catholic Church today. So that's why you have to go to church and you have to go to Mass and you have to take the Eucharist continually because that's how you keep inculcating uh, the body and blood of Christ. That, that now becomes a mystical way to stay saved. And so, of course, uh, th- that's why Catholic Masses are so well attended. And, and you, you, uh, you come because you need to get that over with. And you need to get it done. And that's the view that a lot of Catholics have. How about the Reformation era? The Reformers did a general overall reevaluation of the Catholic understanding of the sacraments. They concluded that the only sacraments supported in Scripture were baptism and the Lord's Supper. Did you see the key phrase, the only sacraments supported in Scripture? What a a strange idea that you would actually just only do things that are supported in Scripture. The Reformers all rejected the Catholic view of transubstantiation in regard to the Lord's Supper. But let me remind you of something. Remember what almost all the Reformers were? They were Catholic priests. Which I know is weird for us. You know, if you see pictures or, or uh, drawings of the Reformers, they, they're wearing these goofy hats and they look just weird. And you go, well, maybe that's just a style. No, that's still left over from Catholicism. Um, Martin Luther's pulpit 
Um, and his church, it looks like a Catholic church. Um, and I'm actually, I actually love very, I, I love churches that are well designed and that, that have a high and lofty feel to them. Um, during the uh, Bible church era, which began in the early 1920s by some accounts, um, there was a huge shift to away from anything that looked outward. And so like a room like this would have been considered in the early Bible church movement as just a little bit too fancy. Um, that this floor, it has two colors. we got to get rid of it. There's that weird 1974 carpet on the wall. That's got to go. Um, and, and we just got to make it plain. And everything has to be spiritual. Well, is that how you feel about our sanctuary? Is it, does it lead you to a lofty set of thinking? It should. It's supposed to. There's a reason we don't like sanctuaries with eight-foot ceilings. Um, we actually, the church was looking at buying a, a facility a couple years ago, and it was a huge sanctuary with an eight-foot ceiling. It was like being in a cave. It was claustrophobic. And so historically, the church has built structures that are high and lofty and glorious, and they should be. If you combine sound doctrine with sound architecture, that's a glorious combination. Um, that's just a little side note. But the reformers were still Catholic priests, and they... they they brought some of that with them. So, yeah, they rejected transubstantiation, but now the fight began, what are we going to accept in the Lord's table, in the Eucharist? Martin Luther, he believed in consubstantiation. The real presence of Christ in, with, or under the elements. That there is a, a special presence of Christ um, literally at the elements. And he would, he would stop short of transubstantiation but he would say the presence of Christ is there. He wouldn't say that the bread and the wine actually are the body and blood of Christ. He would say that the, the presence of Christ is right there at, the, at that place. Ulrich Zwingli and the Anabaptists, they took a memorial view that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a commemoration and a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. John Calvin went somewhere in between. He had a mediating view. That there is a spiritual presence of Christ, but it's still a memorial. Now, there's a slight flaw to all of that, and that is that um, it, it ignores the fact that Jesus promised that the Spirit of Christ would indwell every single believer. And so it becomes a little bit dicey to start saying that there's more of the presence of God at one time with a group of believers than at another time. Um, so that, that becomes a little bit dicey. I'm not willing to step really, really hard onto that thin ice. But the sad part is, is that it was the differing views of the Lord's table that kept the reformers fighting amongst themselves. They were, they were fighting over this um, consubstantiation versus the memorial view and Calvin kind of a mediating view right in between. The reformers also had differing views on the significance of baptism. Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin all maintained the importance of infant baptism. Now, I use the key word. They maintained the importance. What did that mean? It means that they, they felt that the Catholic Church was correct on that count. And so they continued with, script, with uh, uh, infant baptism. They didn't come up with infant baptism from an objective view of Scripture. And it's still, in my mind, of all the doctrines that we can sort of put up with, are there people who have been baptized as infants who are saved? Absolutely. There's tons of them. And so we can sort of put up with that. We don't practice paedo-baptism. 
But of all the ones that we sort of put up with, it is the least able to be supported. There, there is no support for it. How many infants were baptized in Scripture? Zero. And the closest you can come is in the, in the book of Acts that so-and-so and all the household were baptized. And they would say, well, there were probably infants there. That's a real stretch. Uh, you don't know that. And the household probably more refers to the fact that the slaves and the servants who were sitting outside the door hearing the gospel all came running in saying, I want to be saved too. The household referred to a, almost a, a company in the home. So it's really light, the evidence for it, but they still maintained it. I, I think there's a growing movement um, once again today toward paedo-baptism. Um, for a while, even covenant theologian, uh, covenant theology churches were shying away from infant baptism. And um, to, in my mind, most of the covenantal churches in Bakersfield um, are believers' baptism churches, and so they, we would be in agreement with them. I think there may be one or two, but their paedo-baptism is making a huge resurgence, just like post-millennialism, by the way, uh, which is interesting because our world is going down so fast right now. Post-millennialists have nothing to to stand on, but it's. It's making a comeback again. But so Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, they, they maintained infant baptism. Um, does that make them bad? No, they were great godly men, and we praise the Lord for them. It just means that they only had one lifetime in which to develop their theology. And then the Anabaptists. Uh, Anabaptists is just a word that means to baptize again. They were re-baptizing, so to speak, all the people who had been baptized as infants. They reject infant baptism in favor of believer's baptism. Um, I'm going to say that out of all the people I've ever baptized, eight out of ten of them easily have been, um, quote-unquote, baptized before, either as infants or as unbelievers. And so uh, that's very common. I'll bet in this room are people who have been baptized more than once. Um, because you found out, oh, wait, I, I got baptized before I was even saved. So what does it mean? Um, what I like to say is it means that you got wet in a religious environment. It, you weren't baptized. You got wet in a religious environment. Uh, as a, If you were baptized as an infant, no, you got wet in a religious environment, naked. And that was even worse. So, um, so I... I still have a picture somewhere in a box of myself being in, in the... I grew up early on in the Nazarene tradition and, and they did... They don't call it infant baptism. What do they call it? You remember? Dedication. Dedication, yeah. But you still had the little basin and you had the, the, the pastor there and, and, and wearing a white dress. Why do they dress up boys in white dresses? No wonder we're all having problems today. And, you, and, and so you all went through that. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. I, I remember when my mom with great pomp and circumstance, gave me the little dress that I was baptized in. I was like, well, great. I think I washed my car with it or something. I I never told her that. But it didn't mean anything to me because that was meaningless. Um, So this has been a a big fight. This has been a big contention. So what I want to do is spend the rest of our time just kind of sharing with you a little bit from my heart about the Lord's table. Because we are receiving the Lord's table today. Um, and so, uh, what, a, what a great opportunity! We are not uh, we're, we're not those who hold a consubstantiation that the real presence of Christ is in, with, or or, or around, or under the elements. We, we don't hold to that. But the reason we don't hold to that is that that we have a very very high view of the presence of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit. Any time the church is gathered together, I have, we have a high view of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Any time a believer is alone in his car. 
that the Spirit of God, if you're truly indwelt by the Spirit, the Spirit cannot be divided. The Spirit doesn't come in various levels of intensity. Well, today was a low-level Spirit day. Um, no, we have, we have the command in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Um, what does that mean? Well, Colossians 3 indicates that means uh, to, to, uh, to have the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly. That you're being obedient, that you're following in the Spirit. So, we already have a high view that just when believers gather together, that's a solemn occasion. That even if you gather in your home with three believing families for dinner, that when you stop for a moment to thank the Lord for the food and for your fellowship, that's a solemn occasion. The presence of Christ is there. Why? Because you're there. This is what Jesus taught the woman at the well in John 4, that a day is coming when people will worship in spirit and in truth as opposed to having to go to a location. And so, where is the church? Anywhere you are. Where is the presence of Christ? Anywhere you are. And so we we already hold to a high view of the presence of Christ, a high view of the presence of God, um, I don't share this very often, but the most terrifying thing I ever do is preaching. It is absolutely terrifying. Not because of uh, because I have a fear of public speaking. I've never suffered from that. I'm thankful for that. But because it's it's important. It's it's the most lofty thing that I can do in this life. And uh, people ask, well, why do you always dress up? Is that a tradition? No, it's because it's important. You dress up for a job interview, why would you wear shorts and a t-shirt to preach the very living word of God? That's just me. So we already have a high view of the presence of God, the presence of Christ. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and you realize that is for eternity. That one billion years from now, you will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That will always be the case. And that, that's, a, that's a mind-blowing thought. And so when we come to the Lord's table, it's not because we're uh, believing in consubstantiation. But I would take, for me personally, a mediating view. I would agree with Calvin. That yes, the Lord's table is a memorial. But because we already have a high view of the presence of God because we're gathering together, and because this is one of just a few things that the Lord Jesus Himself said... That whenever you eat of this bread, whenever you drink of this cup, remember me. Because he said that, that makes it a high and lofty thing. Um, We think about 1 Corinthians 11. Um, There's basically two views of 1 Corinthians 11, the the warnings that Paul gives to the church. One view is is that unbelievers should not take the Lord's table because it will incur the wrath of God. I don't hold that view because unbelievers are already under the wrath of God. Um, that they're already there and if you, if you want to take that view that's fine I'm not going to go to the stake over it but Paul said to the church he said some of you are sick and even dying because you have taken the Lord's table in an improper manner in an unworthy manner and given the whole context of the book of 1 Corinthians we would take that as, as infighting and jealousies and bitterness of heart and so there, there ought to be a sense of awe and a sense of fear of God in coming to the Lord's table. I don't know if you've noticed, we try to project a, a feel, an environment that is both joyful and sober at the same time. 
Um, we, we, even, we even put the lights down low if we remember to do that. We, because this is the, the death of Christ is a dark and horrible thing. And yet we had to have His death. And so then when we're singing of the victory of, uh, of Christ through the Lord's table, we, we have the lights come up again if we remember. And that's just, that's just to help us. Um, so do we take a consubstantiation view? No. But I think we have to be higher than just a memorial view. Oh yeah, this is just help me remember the body and blood of Christ. The event itself matters. It, it matters. And in Scripture, I see in Scripture that um, the taking of the Lord's table is always done in the context of the body of Christ. Um, meaning you're with other believers. I don't see a restriction that it has to be done in an official church service. Um, we take the Lord's table in our family every, every New Year's Eve. We've done that for 20 plus years. That's just something we've always done. Uh, one of my most precious memories of my life is, is taking the Lord's table with my dad serving my family. So believers gathering together, man, what a nice way to, what a nice way to end an evening. Um, what a nice way to fellowship together. Um, but you don't do it by yourself. It, it just seems odd from Scripture. I, mean, I suppose you can, um, but it's something we do together. So consubstantiation, kind of the mystical view, no. Just a memorial where we just go through the motions? No. It is something special. It is sober. It is, it is somber. Um, one more little debate. And this is mm, top five questions I get as a pastor. Why don't we uh, receive the Lord's table every week? Um, there are some traditions that receive the Lord's table three times a year. Other traditions, every single worship service. And both have their reasons. We've kind of found a middle ground. Um, the only admonition concerning timing that when you have the bread and when you have the cup, as often as you eat this bread and as often as you drink this cup, remember the Lord. Remember His sacrifice. So that's what we do. We have chosen once a month because, uh, and there's a lot of discussion and debate about this, um, it is felt, and I think, this is, I think this is true, it is felt that we could lose the... the um, the specialness of the Lord's table, if it becomes routine, um, that is just our that is our propensity, isn't it, to do religious things out of routine? And so we want to break it up a little bit. Um, another reason is that I preach for a little less time, and we sing slightly fewer songs early on because we want to take time. It takes us 20, 30 minutes to receive the Lord's table, and we want it to be special. Um, and, and if we did that every week, it's going to seriously cut down the amount of preaching, which preaching of the Word is even more important than the Lord's table. It is the center of, of Christian worship in many ways. So um, that, that's kind of where we are. I have... I have sensed the development in my own heart in this, that the Lord's table is more and more important, and it should be a high and lofty thing. Um, one more little element to this, and then we actually have five minutes for questions. Um, there's something that Jesus said that is mind-boggling, that when he taught the disciples at the, at the last official Passover slash the first Lord's Supper, when he taught them, that whenever they eat this bread to remember his body which was broken for them, whenever they drink this cup, which is the cup of the new covenant in his blood, he said that he would not drink of the cup until we all drink it together in the kingdom again. That is, that is a phenomenal statement of Christ saying, I'm waiting for you. We won't start the marriage supper of the Lamb without you. <coughs> that blows my mind. That the God of the universe, who can have anything he wants, 
who ascended into heaven, fully God, fully man, has waited. And by the way, most of the church is in his presence, right? And yet the marriage supper of the Lamb hasn't come, so he's waiting for the very last one of us to arrive. Uh, you ever get to somebody's house or a party and they've already started without you? And you're like, hey, what's going on here? Um, Christ will not start without you. He will, the next time, you realize this, the next time Jesus Christ takes a cup of wine in his hand, you will see it personally. That's a mind-blowing thing. So, um, the Apostle Paul said that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sometimes uh, we'll say, uh, we'll repeat until he comes together. Uh, it, It tells us, we don't see him now, we see his representation, but someday... Instead of a remembrance, it'll be, if I can put it this way, a toast. It'll be in person. So I I hope that has helped you a little bit with the Lord's table. I've got five minutes for questions.